0: Morning, happy New Year! Almost. Let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer, please. Lord, we just come before you this morning. We're just so grateful for the New Year, the new the season we just had, the advent of our Savior's birth, and we just pray as we lift as we've lifted up in song today that we recall your grace, we remember your grace, and Lord, as, as we open the word this morning, that you will, it would be your spirit that would proclaim your truth from the, from the scriptures we're going to be looking at this morning, and Lord, just guide my lips, Lord, open our hearts, that we would um, take what you want us to learn this morning uh, from this text, and that we would um, just treasure it, and Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, If you please open your Bibles, if you would, to Galatians chapter 2, verses 14 to 21, um, as we continue to uh, see Paul's defense of the gospel in the light of attacks by Judaizers. Um, And we'll be focusing on justification this morning and its relationship to the law. And um, if you please, if you are able, if you would please stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like Gentiles and not like Jews, how is it? that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law." Since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Far from it. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a wrongdoer. For through the law law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You may be seated. I want to continue where i left off last time which you recall were the ramifications of the sin by peter of rejecting gentile fellowship having previously stood for opening the gospel to them apart from the law and as we examined last time the actions of peter and barnabas and the other jewish believers in antioch in shunning eating with gentiles demonstrated a personal hypocrisy because they understood down deep that what the Judaizers taught was not true and so it does what? It provides a subsequent warning to all that none of us are immune from temptation. Despite the fact that Peter had been transformed and possessed a unique boldness through the gift of preaching, was given the ability to move magnificently and powerfully amongst men and women where great signs follow his teach his preaching and teaching he's still a man and the best of men are men at best so Paul was called to intervene to deal with him and so Peter retains as we all do those characteristics within his life Which, unless he lives in submission to the Spirit of God continually, are going to be prone to trip him up and lay him low, as they do right here in Galatians. And the core reason that he fell was because he was afraid. In the same way he was afraid in John chapter 18 of a little servant girl. Now, it wasn't, Peter, it wasn't that Peter was wrong in what he believed. Because the first 10 verses of chapter 2 end with this lovely picture of the unity of the apostles. He was wrong in his belief. He was not wrong in his belief, he was wrong in his behavior. It was not that he had spoiled things in the manner of his creed, but rather in the manner of his conduct. Because you will remember the story of Peter going up to Jerusalem and the circumcised believers, the Jewish believers, criticized him and then saying in Acts 11.3, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. And then Peter, as a man of strength, goes on to explain why he did that. Now notice Peter uh, says nothing here when confronted by Paul Though he knew he had done, what he had done had fractured the church. Overnight, the church came into chaos because of his defection back to Judaism, emboldening the Judaizers. So this week, we'll see Paul address the church directly through a thorough defense of the strength of our salvation. When attacks come to it, often when least expected, and from unexpected directions Peter's not saying I don't believe the true gospel he's acting like it what the Judaizers is saying is teaching is true and this is a very dangerous compromise anytime those who preach the true gospel affirm or embrace anyone who teaches a false gospel confusion reigns we are to come out from among them and be separate Light has no fellowship with darkness. Notice when Paul sees Cephas deviating from the straight course, he goes to him directly, not talking behind his back. Paul could easily have waited to talk behind his back, for though Peter was the leader, he was not the only sinner here. The others, including Barnabas, were complicit as well. And in doing this, Paul is consistent with what he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. An elder who sins, rebuke before all that others may fear. So he confronts Peter in a public way. And and it is best to publicly rebuke those in sin who have sinned publicly. The purpose is that so their sin should not spread having remained unpunished, and so form a dangerous example elsewhere within the church. It's why you as a congregation should be greatly concerned when nominating men as elders and deacons here every year, as we're in the process of doing now, with elevating men to leadership who can accept both public and private rebukes gracefully with a penitent spirit when they are caught in sin. Why? Because it demonstrates they have a servant's heart, that they are humble and not defensive or pugnacious, and so not prone to retaliate or to sulk, or in some other way internalize their anger and so create division in the church. Verse 14 says, I saw that they were not straightforward which is ortho in Greek, from which we get orthopedic. Ortho means straight. Padeo is the verb from which the word foot comes. So they weren't walking straight. They were not walking straight about the truth of the gospel. Or they were to alternately say they were not walking uprightly. It's, it's really the, uh, this term is the only uh, place that's used here in, in scripture although walking analogies are favorites with Paul in representing a different ethical ideas. By the way, the sin of hypocrisy is one of the most subtle and dangerous of sins. Seven times Jesus thundered against the religious leaders of his day in Matthew and Luke. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy! Leaven spreads subtly and pervasively until the whole lump of dough is affected. So does hypocrisy. It is a perpetual danger for the religious and especially for religious leaders. And it is a root sin that Paul confronts here in our text and one we need to look to within ourselves often. In Romans 2.17, to 17 through 24 which we looked at last week Paul speaking to professing Jews to what end if we instruct someone else do we not also instruct ourselves in verses 15 to 21 the section which follows is is a continuation of, of the rebuke addressed to Peter, but the apostle moves and begins commenting on his own words, now addressing directly to the Galatians. So we are thus led without any real break from the historical and personal to the doctrinal portion of the epistle where Paul's going back and defined the gospel again. His statement in verses 15 and 16, We are Jews by nature, and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. Since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified." In Job 25.2, we have Bildad's very important question regarding righteousness. Dominion and awe belong to him. Who makes peace in his heights? Is there any number to his troops? And upon whom does his light not rise? How then can mankind be righteous before God? How can anyone who is born of a woman be pure? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, much less man that maggot and a son of man that worm. How can a man be righteous before God? How can a condemned sinner be declared just? Paul would answer, Bill, by saying, by faith. By faith in Christ. By faith alone. Not by works. There are important words here in Galatians 2. The word faith is here, the word law is there. But there's another word there, used for the, really for the first time, a word which could easily go unnoticed, but is critically essential to the message of this letter and to the gospel. It's the word justified. And you see it three times in verse 16, in verse 17, and again in verse 21. Justification explains the true gospel's view of faith and law. Paul unfolds this great core doctrine of justification by faith alone. This is the article of faith that Luther once said, If it is lost, all true doctrine is lost and the church is lost how are we to understand the doctrine of justification if you say to someone in a court you're condemned you would understand that well the opposite of that is to say to someone you're justified you're righteous it's the opposite of condemnation from our 20 affirmations and denials of salvation justification is defined as salvation from the penalty of sin. At the moment of justification through saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, the following occurs. The sins of the believer are forgiven. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer. The believer has union with or is joined to Christ. The believer is regenerated, born again as a new creation in Christ. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer And lastly, the believer is placed in the right standing with God and receives eternal life with God. Now there's a lot there, but we'll break it down. So justification is a matter of imputation, reckoning, charging. The sinner's guilt is imputed to Christ. Christ's righteousness is imputed to the sinner. This is often called the great exchange. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He, God, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Imputation means we now wear the righteousness of Christ as a kind of encompassing cloak over us. We're not infused personally, as a Catholic would teach, But we wear Christ's righteousness over us. We are declared righteousness before God, before men, and before ourselves. That is a gracious act of God, whereby, based on Christ's work as our mediator, he declares the sinner just. And the recipient accepts this with a believing heart. We see this in Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5, Romans 9, and Titus 3. It is a blessing, people, because as God imputes Christ's righteousness to the believing sinner, God does not merely cancel a sinner's guilt and declare that that sinner is innocent. God imputes through the covering with the cloak of Christ's righteousness to the believing sinner's account and declares that the sinner is righteous. We are not innocent in and of ourselves. Otherwise, are we? Sin is in our nature because of the curse of Adam. We sin continuously. In justification, the Father takes the lead. Romans eight thirty three. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. In the resulting sanctification, the Holy Spirit takes the lead. As our lives become more and more conformed to the image of Christ, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. As for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters beloved by the Lord. We are always thankful that God shows you to be among the first to experience salvation. A salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy and through your belief in the truth. Justification is a once for all verdict, sanctification is a lifelong process. They are dis- distinct but not separate, they are linked. So justification, then, is the foundation of true religion, the foundation of Christianity, and the foundation of the gospel. In verse 15, Paul writes, We are Jews by nature, and not sinners from among the Gentiles. What is Paul saying here? We, meaning Jewish Christians, like Peter, to whom he is speaking, and Paul and Barnabas, we... Like other Jewish believers in the church in Antioch, we, through Jews, by, are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Now, this is a contrast you really need to understand. Paul says, we're all Jews by nature. Those of us who are the sons of Abraham, we've lived all our lives under the law we've lived all our lives with scripture we know the system the jewish religious system dominated jewish culture it was a single soul monolithic monotheistic system there weren't multiple religions in israel like there were in the gentile world there was the one religion of their form of judaism we lived under that so we were not sinners as the gentiles what do you mean you're not sinners Paul means, in a visible, manifest, earthly sense, our Judaism prescribed our lives. Our Judaism restrained us. Gentiles, from a Jewish perspective, you see, are called sinners because they live without restraint. Their deities are wretched. Their deities are immoral. Their temples are full of prostitutes. Gentile religion is a gross, immoral religion. We're not like that. We know what it is to live under the law. We haven't lived like Gentile sinners. And we lived under the law. And the law restricted us and constrained us. And we tried to love God and we tried to keep his commandments. And we fasted and we prayed and we gave alms. And this is vital. Because what does a Jew learn by living under the law? What do we learn? Verse 16. That is, here, this is what we learned. That that is what we learn nevertheless is in spite of of what we just described, we conclude that a man is not justified by works of the law. The position of the Judaizers is, you've got to have the law operating. The believing Jews are saying, hey, we've been there. Paul says, we've experienced that. We've done what Romans 9 and 10 says. Go with me over to Romans 9 uh, verse 30, please. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, but the righteousness that is by faith? However, Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though they could by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a zone excuse me a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and the one who believes in him will not be put to shame brothers and sisters my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them for their salvation for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God but not in according to knowledge for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You see, here's the difference between the law and legalism. Legalism separates the law of God from the person of God. When Paul sees every covenantal question pointing to and being fulfilled in Christ, it demonstrates that the law was good and that it itself was filled with grace Because it was manifested by a loving God who still required it to be cloaked in holiness. God is a gracious God, but God is a holy God. This is different than the Judaizers smuggling law into the gospel. That's legalism. And it's as old as Eden. And it's why there is, primarily, it's still uh, the ultimate pastoral problem, even to this day. It was for Paul in the first century, it is today. Paul says, we've gone about establishing our own righteousness. We've tried to work our way to God like Paul and his testimony in Philippians 3 and and what did we find out we found out that a man is not justified by works of the law that's why we fled to Christ that's why we're called Christians it was all external legalism with the Judaizers Jesus pointed out that out in the Sermon on the Mount you don't kill anyone but you hate people you're a murderer in your your murdering your heart you don't commit adultery but you lust. So you're a fornicator in your heart. You're an adulterer in your heart. And that's a real problem. The law can't change the heart. The law points to condemnation and death. We know to try to live by the law is futile in our own strength from Paul's point of view. So then it is absolutely astonishing then from his perspective for believers led by Judaizers to think we've got to go back to the law with all the racial superiority covenant promise legal benefit scripture they found out one very important significant thing that the law pronounces condemnation on the see on the cross Jesus died for our law breaking he paid the penalty for our violations of the law he paid the penalty in full he bore our sins in his own body on the cross He became sin for us. And all that is required for us to be justified is to acknowledge our sin and helplessness and so learn to repent of self-will and self-effort and self-righteousness and put our confidence in the work of Jesus Christ. So literally, he says in verse 16, through faith in Jesus Christ, into Jesus Christ... As he's saying here, not just agreeing that Jesus was a great, some kind of great guru or teacher who lived and died and has wise words to say to us, but to him becoming our refuge. When we come to Christ as our refuge, we embrace the one who fully satisfied the law of God, people. And the one who bore the penalty for all our sins by a judicial act of God. Because our sins are paid for in Christ. God declared us righteous by faith alone. We see this in John 3, don't we? Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He's a member of the ruling party, the Pharisees. An elite leader of Jerusalem. A legalist. He comes to Jesus having bound himself to all the Mosaic prescriptions. And the question in his heart is, how do I get into the kingdom of heaven? Into the kingdom of God? So here's a Jew who's kept the law as much as is humanly possible. And he knows he's not in the kingdom. And that's really the point to all, through which all religious Jewish believers must pass through that point we saw what the law did it is useless other than as a tutor so nicodemus wants to know how can i be in the kingdom jesus doesn't say to him well there's a couple more things you need to do he says you need to be born again your entire life of accumulated works are meaningless You're on the fast track to hell as a humanistic, immoral atheist since works play no no part in salvation. How can that be, says Nicodemus? Jesus says you have to be born from above. You can't do it. God has to do it. All a sinner can do is to cry out to God to give him life and faith in Christ. Um, So to look at this another way in verses 15 and 16, the danger these Judaizers are in if a Jew who having turned to Christ has learned that strict obedience to legal requirements both divine and human will not bring him into the kingdom but the Judaizer nevertheless tries to impose legalism on Gentiles he places a yoke on them which is inexcusable And then so places himself under condemnation. Paul provides here the last general principle I'm going to say on this. Since by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified, no flesh, it's impossible. He says, we've been there. We've been there. We've been under the law. What did it do? It it just condemned us. And as you go from verse 17 to the end of the chapter, Paul defends this justification by faith alone. And here again, you see the Bible is not a bunch of mushy, sentimental thinking, but of powerful arguments by an inspired mind, the Holy Spirit-inspired mind of Paul. Verse 17, but if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, which is the only way by faith, of course, since we ourselves have been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? Now, at first you read that and you say, well, what does that mean? Is Paul, for the sake of argument, granting the Judaizers point, that if if you're going to if all if all you're doing is trusting in faith, you're not saved. You need to go back to the law, be circumcised, and adhere to the law. Paul says, "Okay, if while seeking to be just and fighting Christ, we end up found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? If the Judaizers are right, hypothetically, if the Judaizers are right, then Christ set us up for sin because he proclaims that salvation is through him and faith alone." And if we do that, believe him, receive his grace, embrace it by faith, and now you Judaizers say, because we're not keeping the law, we are sinners, then Christ set us, set us up to lead us into sin. If the Judaizers are right, demanding that we, in seeking to be justified by faith in Christ alone, apart from works, are turning out to be sinners because we don't keep the law, then are you going to say Christ made us sinners? Are you saying Christ is a minister of sin? And then Paul recoils from his own logic here. Because it's blasphemy. And he says, may it never be. Meganoito in the Greek, no, 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 not possible, God forbid. No, Christ isn't the sin promoter here. The Judaizers are the sin promoters. Verse 18, for if I rebuild what I once destroyed, the system of works, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Christ isn't the transgressor by freeing us from the law. The Judaizers are the transgressor by taking us back to the law. And rebuilding what you once destroyed in the gospel of grace, you become a sinner by returning to the law which you abandoned. You're rebuilding a system of legalism. People don't define our life by a relationship to the law, we define our life by a relationship to Jesus Christ. I died to the law again. The law is no longer my master. It is no longer sitting in condemnation on me. I died to the law. It's a fact. At salvation, at the time I believe in Christ, I died to the law. I have no more connection to the law. No more connection to circumcision, to Sabbaths, to feast days to festivals, to new moons. All the things that Paul pushes away in Colossians 2. It doesn't mean that I live a disobedient life, quite the contrary. I have a new master, Jesus Christ. I obey him out of love, not the law out of fear. So love, Paul says, fulfills the law. In fact, when I died under the law, I couldn't keep the law. I was a clean, polished tomb on the outside, painted white, inside full of stinking men's bones. But in Christ, I can enjoy fulfillment of the law. How? Go with me, if you would, over to Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, or alternately from the heart. Why? Why? Because with justification comes regeneration, and with regeneration comes a new heart, a new spirit, a new nature, as we set out, we set out in our affirmations on justification. And that's verse 19. Unlike the Judaizers, Christ plus the law doesn't define my life. I'm not a legalist nor a libertine. I don't live with a perspective towards the law, I live to God. How did that happen? How do you go from the law defining everything, circumcision, all the restraints, all the restrictions, all the ceremonies, all the requirements? How do you go from that to just living to God? Well, the answer comes in verses 20 and 21 this explains it it's among the great verses in the Bible and a grand ending crescendo to this chapter verse 20 I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me did you see any law in that verse what do you mean I have been crucified with Christ When he died, I died. God can justify the one who has faith in Christ because Jesus paid in full the penalty for that believer's sins. Verse 20 defines what it is to be a Christian. You have been crucified with Christ. Paul says, I live in love for the Savior who loved me, gave himself up for me. I live to trust him. And out of that trust flows obedience. So justification, as we have discussed, rests not on human works and not even on faith as a work of man, but solely on God's sovereign grace in Jesus Christ. Man cannot earn it. He can only accept it as a gift. A gift. People, faith is the hand that reaches out and accepts this gift. This does not reduce man to sheer passivity. A tree which accepts water and minerals from the soil and light from the sun is very active. Faith is is receptive and responsive, but it is not passive. And this responsive obedience in faith is the key that really unlocks how to understand James 2. Go with me, if you would, over to James 2, verses 21 to 26. We have here the story of Abraham and Rahab. Was our father Abraham not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected and the scripture was fulfilled Which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was Rahab the prostitute not justified by works, but also when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. See, Abraham was preparing to sin by murdering his own son. Rahab to commit treason by betraying her country and the king of Jericho. Why? As a result of an overwhelming faith and belief in the one true God who saves. Their faith took flight. On the cross, Jesus was punished for all the sins of all the people through all human history. When he died, I was crucified there. When he rose, I rose with him. I was baptized, immersed into his death, immersed into his resurrection. To what end? So that I can walk in newness of life. I'm not the man I used to be. It's no longer I who live, but Jesus Christ lives in me. What a statement, union with Christ. I'm not the old me. Unlike the Judaizers here in Galatians 2, I don't live in a relationship to the law. I live in a love relationship to Christ through faith. I now seek to trust him, seek to please him, to love him, to honor him, to worship him. And this brings up a very important, necessary question. Do I really want the gift or the giver? What or whom am I trusting? Do I become so enthralled, so exhilarated, so overwhelmed with this wonderful gift of salvation and forget the one who was born of a virgin, led a perfect sinless life, and died on the cross to make that gift possible for me personally? How easy it is at Christmas to focus on what we've just unwrapped and forget the source and the sacrifice of the one who made the gift possible. Thanks for the free gift of salvation, Lord. I'll give you a call and I need something else. No. No. The gift of salvation, a right standing with God, is sublime. But never forget where it comes from. God himself. Abraham understood this. I believe Rahab understood this. Paul understands this. We believers should understand this. Not just understand it, but live it. Christ lives in me. That's the clearest, simplest definition of the Christian life. It's not you anymore, it's Christ in you. You have become one with him. Over and over, Paul says, In Christ. We're in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. Then he flips and says, Christ in us, Christ in us, Christ in us. So over time, I don't know where I end and he begins. I don't live by law, I live by love. By his amazing grace, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. What an incredible truth. The Judaizers here in Galatians, by hopelessly clinging to essentially a Christless legalism, were blind to this. Paul concludes here by saying in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If you add works, then grace is no longer grace. Brothers and sisters, the moment we believe this divine miracle, we have been crucified with Christ. The law's demands against us for all the violations are satisfied. They have no more hold on us. The dominating power of the old nature is broken. I live, yet not I. It's a transformed I instead of a sinner with a totally depraved nature attempting to earn acceptance with God by works. I'm now a saint, accepted, beloved, with Christ living in me, living his life through me. And this leads to a second um, consideration here as we finish and that is fleshing out this totality of our reliance in Christ taken to an even more elemental level that of life itself the understanding that not just our spiritual self but our physical self is not our own as we are destined for either eternal joy or eternal damnation we are completely and utterly dependent on his grace for our very existence You know, the Advent is a time of the year about what? Birth, life. And it usually starts where? Normally in Luke, with the barrenness of Elizabeth and the promise of new life in old age. The miraculous birth of the forerunner to our Savior as a gracious gift to Zachariah and his wife. We live, yes... But always remember, as flesh, we are incapable of either creating or sustaining life. Neither our morality, nor our adherence to legalism, nor our goodness, nor our supreme parenting skills, nor our regular quiet times, nor any works can halt our inevitable march towards death. Zechariah and Elizabeth were not unbelieving Judaizers, but two among countless righteous believers of blameless lives who are shown to desperately need the life-giving power of Christ for a child, yet helpless to make this come about. Go with me over to John 6, 27. And we'll finish by hearing directly from our Lord Jesus. Do not work for the food that perishes... But for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him, the Father, God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what are we to do so that we may accomplish the works of God? Jesus said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent, So they said to him, What then are you doing as a sign so that we may see and believe you? And what work are you performing? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They then said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will not be hungry and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. But I say to you that you have indeed seen me and yet you do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Lord, we just uh, thank you for this new season. We thank you for your grace, your mercy. Lord, we, we know that we are helpless babes, that we control not, our, not our, our spiritual destiny nor our physical destiny. Lord, we need you so much. We need your grace. We need your mercy. Lord, we thank you for RJ and Erica and their family making it down here. Lord, give him power in the pulpit. Help him in your spirit to rebuke us sharply when necessary, and to comfort us with, with your love when necessary. And Lord, we just we lift up those in this holiday season who have are hurting, who have lost a loved one, who are sick, who are su- who are suffering from disease um, or other maladies, um, who struggle with depression. Um, loneliness. Lord, that our church should be a light to them, either those within the church or those in our community. Lord, help us to draw near to you in this new year, that this year would be a, a year where we truly understand your grace and your mercy. And we ask these things in Jesus Christ. Amen.